Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we return to the question of a commodity supercycle. The fundamentals remain in place. Deglobalization, duplicating supply chains, energy transition requiring trillions of dollars of investment to electrify the world, and redistributed policies in the wake of COVID and now rising energy and food prices. However, how does this stack up against increasing interest rates and slowing global growth? Returning to the show is Jeff Curry, Chief Economist for Commodities for Goldman Sachs. Jeff is updating us on his views on where the commodity cycle is at and why. As always, you can really support the show by leaving us a five-star review or even a written review on the platform you're listening on. This expands the audience and therefore allows us to continue to bring on fantastic guests. I hope you enjoy the episode. Jeff, welcome back to the show. Great. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be back. So last time we were, we were here, it was March, and we were talking about the, the redlining of commodities. Essentially, we were seeing a huge run-up right across the board, across all of commodities. A lot's happened since then, which is why I want to, to check back in and, and, and get your sense of where we stand today, whether all of those factors remain in place or whether we're now fighting, obviously, a, a, a potentially shrinking GDP as a result of in, interest rates. But can we, before we sort of dig into the into the now, for those listeners who didn't hear it, can you just, I guess, give us a bit of a recap of your fundamental thesis on on redlining commodities, these redistributive policies, energy transition, deglobalization, and then also the the revenge of the old economy from a supply standpoint? You know, given the fact that recent events have really been driven around supply shortages, why don't we start with the supply story or what we call the revenge of the old economy. For those of you who don't remember what we meant by the revenge of the old economy, it's just the observation that over the last decade, poor returns in the old economy saw capital redirected to the new economy, i.e. tech or the fangs. You know, and it was done for economic reasons originally just because the returns were so much higher in tech than what they were in activities like oil and energy. Obviously, that's changed recently, but the problems today stem from that mass exodus of capital. And when we think about the dynamic here, and just put bluntly, is you starve these old economy companies of the capital that needed to grow the supply base which then in turn created the problems that we're witnessing today. Now, if we go back to the 2000 super cycle, what preceded it? It was the dot-com boom. In fact, that's where we coined the term the revenge of the old economy was during that time period. But it was the exact same dynamic. You know, the most recent decade, it was the fang boom. In the 90s, it was a dot-com boom, but guess what? It even happened in the 60s with the Nifty 50, which was the new economy back then. It was just like Coca-Cola and Gillette brand names, but they were stealing capital from the old economy names. Now, where has my thinking changed uh, since we last spoke in March? I'm beginning to realize that ultimately what occurred during the 2010s 
the 1990s in the 1960s to create this revenge of the old economy is that interest rates were simply too low. This caused the market to chase, I like to call it pie in the sky type activities. Um, you know, the most recent time period. <laughs> Did I say it, crypto? <laughs> crypto, yeah, absolutely, crypto. But now here's, if you're now following the logic here, what I'm talking about. Oh, by the way, great book you got to read, Edward Chancellor's Price of Time. He makes these observations. You know, I yes. thought when we, I stumbled upon this idea in February of 2002, this revenge of the old economy, I found something new. The reality is the French philosophers knew about this going back, you know, 300 years ago, and you can read about it in that book. But here's where my fundamental change, my process of thinking in this has changed. Back in March, I told you the revenge of the old economy story and said it was a turbocharged version due to ESG. What I'm beginning to realize, ESG is no different than crypto, meaning that when interest rates were too low, along with crypto, meme stocks, technologies, or, you know, the ARC innovation funds and everything along that line, ESG is exactly the same thing. And that when you think about green hydrogen or net zero 2050, it's all the exact same type of dynamics where you're looking at something that is discounted way out into the future. When interest rates start to rise, and this is what I've watched since, because basically the interest rate hike started in March when we last spoke, as interest rates begin to rise, People have to make choices. And today starts to matter a lot more than 2050, tomorrow, way out there in the future. So a question I got last night was, won't higher interest rates kill off the investment in the old economy? No, it's the exact opposite. The higher interest rates make those pie-in-the-sky type activities less interesting or less profitable and you start focusing on the today yeah i I, one point i want to emphasize here about the today and in net zero 2050 um i want all the listeners to know that you know emissions are likely to be up six percent this year we're not getting close to that but as the interest rates start to rise, instead of focusing on net zero 2050, let's start focusing on reducing emissions in 2023. And I think that all of these, there's a lot of low hanging fruit, making, putting drill bits into the ground for both green stuff as well as dirty stuff to make it more balanced and, you know, in a proper transition or, you know, copper mines to be able to enable the green revolution. I think that as the interest rates start to go up, we start to focus on these issues. Another way to say it is um, higher interest rates need, ma'am, suggest that you need to make choices. Mm. Less hydrogen, dare I say it, and more just getting rid of coal plants, I think. Is, exactly. Is, is a, but one, one thing to that, so the staying on the revenge of the old economy. So as we speak today, we're getting results from the US oil producers. I'll say the name, but you know, Exxon has a trillion dollars worth of cash. And you know, we've covered this story a little bit. Normally, in typical times like this, they'd be out there finding new reserves, right? Investing in drilling, but that still's really not happening. So, is this still that pressure from ESG preventing them doing it? My point being, 
we're likely to continue to see a lack of investment in hydrocarbons so long as that is penalized by shareholders and also by the financiers not willing to step up to finance it. That's a very easy narrative to tell. And in Europe, it may be true, but in the rest of the world, it's not. Here is probably a more accurate narrative. The industry has a track record of destroying wealth. I mean, unprecedented track record of destroying wealth. In fact, you know, the, the numbers are along the lines of, and uh, I don't know it to the exact cent, but this is within a percent or two. In the 1990s, in that revenge of the old economy, U.S. EMPs destroyed 27 cents on every dollar they were given. In the 2010s, they destroyed 52 cents on every dollar they were given. No wonder investors aren't lining up um, to give Exxon money to go out and do it again. I think the key point, and by the way, I haven't gone through the numbers yet for Exxon, but I'm going to give you a stat that held from last quarter that tells you what really needs to change here, is that in last quarter, Microsoft and Exxon printed the same free cash flow. By the way, from the sounds of it this quarter, Exxon may be larger. Microsoft is a $2.1 trillion company. It was about a week or two ago, while Exxon is a $400 billion company. Same free cash flow. Another way to say it is Microsoft is trading, you know, 26, 27 times earnings, while Exxon is somewhere between 8 and 10 times earnings. What needs to happen is you need to have a role reversal. By the way, 10 years ago, the roles were reversed between Exxon and Microsoft. Go back 10 years before that and it was reversed the other way. Um, I like to point out, you know, Paul, in our lifetimes, you and I have seen Exxon Mobil trade that position, um, I think, two or three times. Um, mm -hmm. And I tend to think you're going to do it. Now, to answer your question about what is it going to take, I think is that the investor needs to believe in the persistency of this story. And I don't even think that even here in Europe, with everything they've seen on, on ESG, I don't know if that's the hesitancy even here in Europe. I know there's regulatory issues and so forth like that, and it makes it difficult to hold these. But I think even here in Europe, it's that history of wealth destruction is that's keeping them from doing it. Another way, the current shareholders, they want their money back before these guys are going to go out and do it again. Um, and they got to be really sure that next time they do it, they're going to get a return. So I would chalk it up to that more than, than ESG. And, and by the way, I've spoken to allocators who will tell me that. They go, hey, three reasons why nobody likes this space. Number one, a history of bad returns. Number two, the volatility is too high. And then number three, ESG. But if mm -hmm. you buy my view that ESG is just a function of low interest rates, as interest rates begin to rise, it starts to become more of a rational discussion. So that's certainly bullish oil prices for the long term, to some extent. Just, I don't want to conflate ESG and energy transition, right? There's obviously a, a huge overlap in the E, but how is this, you know, the second leg to your three-pronged stool of redlining commodities is energy transition. Is that 
in a higher interest rate environment is that still especially with the what's going on in ukraine a realize of dependence on russian hydrocarbons etc is energy transition itself still a trend a viable long-term trend and it's just going to be have to be more realistic than perhaps with the in, in a high interest rate environment well i think for the listeners when i use the term esg i want to be very careful here I, it's a method of investing in many of the different commodity stocks. Uh, you know, I'm very pro climate change and you, and you know, we argue you need a carbon price, a carbon tax to do this efficiently. But, you know, but but go, you know, going back to the issues around ESG and you know, energy transition, it, I I would say it's more important today than it was 6 months ago and it's gaining momentum. But there, here's where it's different. There's a recognition that the way we were going about it is not working. And again, going back to just the fact that um, emissions are going to be up this year. Uh, you know, I've also convinced myself is that at least in the current environment, not investing in hydrocarbons leads to more emissions. And the reason for that is that if you don't have gas and you don't have oil, you're burning wood and coal. Yeah, bingo, and you end up with more emissions. And I think there's a re growing recognition among investors, even here in Europe, that um, we need to go about it a different way. And you know, we, we'll see uh, what's going to come out of COP27 here in, in, in you know, a few weeks. But I do think that the momentum's there. Am I worried about? metals demand not materializing because of a lack of energy transition absolutely not in fact it's to the contrary in china copper demand is up year on year despite a very weak property market because ev sales are up 100 percent wind installation is up 10 percent. so there's a lot of green activities going around the world that are supporting base metals demand despite a weaker economic backdrop stopping on that carbon pricing there i mean is the lack of we've talked about in the last episode that lack of a carbon tax or at least a, a, a price is that's what's also driving inefficiently to tackle these externalities absolutely if there was a carbon price then everybody would pay their fair share you don't need scope two, scope three emissions and everything like that. By the way, we all learned this in Econ 101, you know, a pricing a negative externality. When you have a tax on the negative externality, you pollute, you pay. We don't have that arrangement right now. And that's where the failure is, is that and actually many of those tech stocks that soared over the previous decade, and some of them are very large emitters. And they call it scope three or scope two because they don't do it directly, but their activities lead to those emissions and nobody paid for those emissions. In fact, one of them admits about the same size as Chevron. And if you figure all of it, scope three it could be two to three times the size of Chevron. Mm. So I think installing and, you know, enacting a carbon price or a carbon tax on a global basis is critical here to equitably distribute the cost of decarbonization and i actually defined to get it going but one last i'm sorry to interrupt you paul but one last point to make a carbon price or a carbon tax work 
you absolutely need compliance. There is, I've convinced myself, voluntary markets for carbon, ESG, all of this voluntary stuff, it makes you do it because you feel good, all works in a zero interest rate environment because you don't have to make choices and nothing has costs. But as we saw in Germany over this last year, once there's a cost decided, the voluntary motivation to be green is out the door. I found this out the other day. You talk, you know, compliance. Remember when Volkswagen got caught cheating with the catalytic converters back in, it was what, five or six years ago, I guess mm-hmm. maybe 10 years ago. And that was the war on acid rain left over from the previous super cycle in the 70s. Their violation had a total price tag of 20 billion dollars that is enormous that's a fine that is pain will people behave and comply to the rules of decarbonization with those kind of fines absolutely yes but that's what's lacking right now there's no compliance there's no fine you know it doesn't have that same regulatory framework that you see in you know the war on acid rain with desulfurization and getting rid of the aerosols. We need to get to that state before we can start really talking about a you know a global carbon price similar to where we had a you know a, a sulfur price back in the 80s to help solve the acid rain problem. Yeah. I mean there might be a I don't know <laughs> there might be a bubble in certainly voluntary carbon credits because every day there's sort of a, a crescendo of stories around how a lack of oversight has meant that the trees never got planted or whatever it might be. And and there is that there's the lack of well there is the whilst there is standardization, there's still a lot of variation within the various different standards. You know, and again it seems that compliance element is what's going to be crucial to to allow these was a Pigovian tax, yep. which actually tackles the externality. Okay, so, so staying on energy transition there, so you, you mentioned metals, and there's clearly the electrification narrative continues at a pace, and all of these, there's a, a solid story, I guess, behind the battery metals, um, the critical metals for that electrification pathway. Is that, that still holds true? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And again, the, the empirical evidence there is the demand um, um, you know, throughout the world's remaining relatively robust. So is there any cracks in that metal-driven demand view from you know, green investment? Absolutely not. If anything, we need to probably take them up. You know, everything what people have learned in places like Europe, um, you're going to spend more, not less. I think what you needed to what you learned is not only do you need to spend a lot more on energy transition and green investment, you also need to spend a lot more on, you know, the conventional energy sources to tie you over before you complete the energy transition. Just so people have a, you know, to put this in context. Right now, somewhere I'll give you the numbers as of the end of this year, at the end of 2021. Fossil fuels represented around 81% of global energy consumption. Now, let's go back a decade. Where were they a decade before that in 2011? The answer is 82. We spent $3.8 trillion on renewables to take that down 1%, which tells you how this is a long, long, difficult, expensive process. But actually, somebody pointed out to me the other day, 
there's a really important point in there. If you went from 82 to 81 with that $3.8 trillion, it tells you all your marginal demand growth was met from those renewables. So there is a positive silver lining to that stat, but it just tells you you have a long ways to go, you know, to have accomplishing this. Mm. But the big problem in 2022 is that number's gone up tremendously from, yeah. I don't know where it, we'll find out. And then, you know, when we get the data at the end of, you know, early next year, but my guess it could be 82 or 83%. Actually, China brought on more coal than the European majors produce in fossil fuels to put just put it in perspective how much has been brought on over the course of the last 12 months. Which just comes back, it keeps striking me at least that the, you know, if you really want to tackle climate change, it's do the, the easiest first, right, which is let's just tackle, you know, coal generation. But so yeah, and, and I think that point about transition is vital, because one of the things I guess 2022 has highlighted to us all is that if it's not an orderly transition, albeit these are exogenous shocks, the Russia's invasion of Ukraine, suddenly, you know, food is fuel, as our friend Doomberg reminds us, and you're having food security issues, which is a whole different scale of society disruption, you know, if this transition doesn't happen in an orderly fashion. And I, by the way, I think it goes to, you know, connecting the deglobalization story to the redistribution story. They're all kind of one and the same story in the sense that part of the reason for deglobalization is to protect your own, your own regional domestic workers uh, from competition in, in manufacturing, from global inflationary pressures, whatever it might be. And so it, that connection really, you know, between deglobalization and redistribution, I think sits at, at the center. And then you can throw in decarbonization or the E, the energy transition point. Why do people like, why do the Chinese and the Germans like renewables so much? Because you're deglobalized. You don't have to rely on the rest of the world for your energy sources. In essence, they're all three kind of one and the same topic. And I like to go back to a point is we look at deglobalization. The first peak in globalization was achieved around, you know, right before the First World War, a little over 100 years ago. And the second one was, call it 2010 or 11. What do both of those peaks have in common? Extremely high income inequality. And what came after 1917, 18, communism, socialism, labor unions, trade, trade wars, tariffs, um, you get the point. All that is to protect the domestic workforces. And a part of that, I think, is just a reflection of the high level of income inequality, which then, as you deglobalize, you set up the barriers to which to protect the, the domestic populations. And so uh, that's why I, I just kind of want to, you know, when, then if we think about what is, when we think about decarbonization, it, it's a regressive tax, meaning the lower income groups are going to pay a much higher share of their income to deal with this problem than the higher income groups. And, you know, and you'll start looking at it that way, you start to realize they're all essentially you know, one and the same problem. And, you know, going back to Doomberg's point about 
food is fuel and you have both of these crises going on at the exact same time underscores this whole point. You underinvest in this old, you know, let's go back to the call it the revenge of the old economy, whatever you want. It's going to reinforce these dynamics. We actually like to call all these dynamics the political economy of inflation. You have these reinforcing dynamics that once it starts, the policy responses in many cases reinforce those underlying type of pressures. Yeah, you know, case in point here in Europe, energy crisis comes. Yeah, <laughs> energy consumption. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I want to I want to come on to that because I think that's fascinating. Just staying on deglobalization. So certainly, you know, we've just uh, covered Volt Rush, Henry Sanderson's book, and there's that striking moment in there where he recounts, you know. Ivan Glazenberg going to Washington and basically saying, are you really sure you want to continue down your current path of penalizing Glencore because this cobalt mine is going to end up in the hands of the Chinese? Do you want that? To which clearly they decided they didn't. You've kind of got that element going on, securing the supply chains for the new economy. But you've also got this sort of setup and it's and it's playing out in currencies of essentially hydrocarbon producers and hydrocarbon, you know, those countries who don't produce hydrocarbons, good old petrostates. And I mean, you know, that is really putting some stresses. You see that in Europe, you see that in, in Asia. Um, that, there's that dynamic as well. Can you just talk to that a little bit? When you look at, you know, the commodity producers in their currencies, yes, they're strong. But not necessarily does it mean that all of the consumers are weak. And one thing that's very unique about the current environment is that many of the emerging markets, their currencies are much stronger than the developed markets. You look at Japan, Europe, Britain, that's where the real weakness exists. Um, I like to point out, you look at the Brazilian real, look at commodities priced in Brazilian real. They're the lowest of anywhere in the world. So there's not many inflationary pressures in Brazil. I think the key reason for all that is many of these emerging markets been there, done that. They had seen this inflationary story before, hiked rates very, very early and are in a much better position than, say, the Japanese or the Europeans or even the British. In fact, actually, here's the numbers for you. If you take commodities year to date, and you put them in Brazilian real, they're up 10%. In dollar, up 22%. Japanese yen, up 51%. Twice what they are up in dollar, which I think is kind of the point you were really making at the front. But I think the, the point I want to emphasize here, it's not a uniform problem and that the emerging markets are in a much better position than what they had been historically given this type of a backdrop. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. Okay, so I guess energy transition, it's still bullish. It's probably got a lot more realism inserted into it. And we're all watching for what happens with carbon markets. 
deglobalization is absolutely continuing and in fact is accelerating to some extent and as you say the last time we were in a similar scenario very bad things followed so we'll hopefully that won't happen but i guess on redistributed policies okay so the key part of your thesis was very much obviously what we've seen in the us is you know huge handouts from the government in the wake of covid that obviously and we talk, you spoke about this last time it's a volumetric issue like the, the 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 lower income classes bought a lot more stuff and that really can rise prices in commodities as opposed to the very few wealthy buying stuff is that still ongoing how is that impact i mean we you know you alluded to it obviously the uk government backstopping people's energy bills is probably going to increase demand not decrease it can you talk to us about redistributed policies alive and kicking from all over the world not only here in the uk you know germany and these are big numbers that are being tossed around you know in many cases larger than what we saw with covid in terms of the fiscal transfers to deal with the energy crisis more recently for those of you and this is sidebar that don't follow these markets closely European gas went from 300 euros a megawatt hour to it was trading under 100 euros a megawatt hour. Sam Dart, our gas expert, she she called this and you know, I always say you don't get hit by the train you see coming. And they made a lot of preparations, demand destruction on the industrial side, built inventories very high, and then weather obviously cooperated and prices came off. So that said, those transfers may not need to be uh, you know as large that were being bad around. By the way, also Sam wants to point out in her view on European gas is even though you may get through this winter, you got a structural problem further out. You need to see the investment. Yes, it's next winter. It's next winter is the problem. But I think the point being here, whether if it's an energy crisis or whatever it might be, what it demonstrates is that that mentality of redistributional policies, once you start it, you don't stop it. You know, Gavin Newsom in the state of California did it. The IRA, that happened since last time we, we, we spoke, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act in, in the U.S. So I can go down through through the list in anywhere in the world. These policies are all alive and kicking. And what they do is they make demand to be relatively inelastic to price, but also it keeps demand alive despite the fact you may have an economic slowdown. So when we look at commodity demand around the world, despite you know the hostile macro environment that we're in right now, it's relatively robust, um, except for gas right here in Europe for all of the obvious reasons. But on a global basis, given everything that's going on, it's maintaining a respectable level. Yeah. So that was, I guess, the fundamental lead up question is, yeah, you're seeing to some extent this decoupling from GDP in this commodity pricing run-up? Yeah, I, in terms of looking at you know the, the, the cyclicality of the demand for a lot of these commodities, it begins to break down because it's more of a, in fact, this is at the, at the core of our call of a commodity super cycle two years ago is that it is policy-driven demand. Everybody's going, how can you be bullish on commodity demand in a weak economic environment well if it's all policy driven your outlook on the underlying in fact in many cases it's the conduit to put policy in the system through stimulus that is actually creating like the the subsidies for for energy consumption that keeps it going regardless of the, the of the economic outlook 
so as you look so so we've we've essentially if you look at you know whatever commodity index it might be you've had this essentially a pause since the spring for all of these reasons you've highlighted but essentially you know from what you're saying you still expect to see a march upward can you talk to us a little bit about what you see in 2023 uh, and beyond well paul you're being kind to us no it's been a rough rough last three months <laughs> i think markets are down something like 30 percent um no we weren't looking our iq dropped pretty precipitously you know but i look at this i've been doing this 26 percent, and i got hit by something i should have known better and here, let me try to explain to you why i should have known better when you look let's take the definition of inflation the definition of inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. So it has two conditions, too much money and too few goods. And when we think about the condition of the too few goods, that's low inventories and commodities, the too few goods condition has gotten tighter. That's why we held on. We're going, wait, fundamentals are getting tighter. So you don't want to be short these markets. But what happened to the too much money condition? It turned into you know, if it's too much money chasing too few goods, it was fewer dollars chasing fewer goods. And the fewer dollar condition, the, the money supply is shrinking faster than the fundamentals were getting tighter. And so what that did is it dragged down the price in the face of, of tightening fundamentals. So and then if you put, you know, the dollar was the proxy for this. And then if you put, you know, the number of dollars available against Japanese yen, which the yen is at 150 right now. I mean, your dollars are, I, I don't know where we started the year, but it's got to be somewhere around 100. That means there's 50% less dollars in Japan than what there was at the beginning of the year. Here in the UK, it's something like 16, 17% fewer dollars. And so it's like, I, like, I was at an LMV, LME event this week and Somebody said, oh, you know, money supply, I hear you, I hear you. Is it contract? It's not contracting, is it? Yeah, it's really contracting when you th think about everything denominated in dollars. You take all the G7 countries, you take their M2, and you convert it all into dollars. The amount of G7 M2 is contracting at an exorbitantly fast rate, given the strength in the dollar. And since these are global markets, that global supply of dollars is really what matters. So I think you, if you, you get my point, you got to separate the macro story from the micro story. So when can the micro story beat the macro story? You, you need the central bankers to probably, you know, not only slow down, but potentially pause. But then I, I, I go back to, to late 06, 07 period very similar to now you had huge rate hikes in what was it five 2005 2006 the fed paused in late 06 and it began, you know there was concerns of you know by then you were getting you know the cracks were apparent in the housing market yield curve got inverted just like it is today now, what happened is then oil went from 77. That's why I've seen this before. It went from 77 to 45. Then what happened? The Fed 
put the foot back on the accelerator. And I think most people listening to this know what happened between January 05, <laughs> the oil was at 45, and by July of 2008, we were 147. But there was still another story behind that, right? Which I guess is what you're saying. At this time, the story is one of energy transition, deglobalization, and, and obviously the current policies around redistribution. Because the story behind that was essentially China continued to grow. Right, which was the major force behind the last super cycle, and it was only in tw- in 2012 when this sort of the clampdown on Xi Jinping's clampdown on corruption, etc., that really sort of stalled a lot of that. But 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 you need both conditions. You need there's the money supply condition, and there is the fundamental story. So everything you just mentioned to me of you know the the redlining then or the China story then, the fundamentals were tight. That's why I, you know I remember it was late. Late 06, 07, it was the same. I felt the same way as I do today, going, we're bullish, we're bullish. The fundamentals are tight. Look at the fundamentals. The price goes down every day because the system was still tightening up. What happened in early 07 is due to concerns around credit problems, the money supply started growing again. And I thought, oh, I'm a brilliant commodities analyst. I was looking at Charta the other day thinking, you know, oh, the fundamentals, the fundamentals. No. Money supply. I just tell you, if you're listening to this, go back and look at the money supply. It starts growing then. And then it was September 07, they start cutting rates. And by that point, whoo, thing just went straight up. Dollar was the weakest it's ever been in July of 2008. And I'm pretty sure I can say this statement with confidence. There's never been more liquidity in the system ever in the history of all these economies put together. More dollar liquidity than there was in July of 08. Fundamentals probably didn't change that much, but the liquidity picture changed dramatically. And so that's why I'm just like, you know, actually, I think, you know, peak to trough on some of these markets is like 40%, but the fundamentals got tighter. I'm doing the, you know, the rounds here in London with LME week and everybody's, you know, either they buy into the macro story and they're bearish and they want to blame it on demand weakness, but where's the metal? The fundamentals are tight, but the price goes down. The price is going down is because the liquidity is coming out of the market. Yeah. And, and we started with the, the price of time, which I agree with you is an excellent, an excellent book. The, the you know, and, and it's a fascinating narrative there of essentially, you know, how it's robbed labor to to pay assets, right? Increase in, in wealth inequality that we've, we've seen. Yeah. You know, so part of this narrative, what you're talking about there is, do, do you think, because the world has not faced realistic interest rates and realistic um, efficient deployment of capital for a quite a long time, at least a decade, the working lifespan of many investment bankers, will will the economies stick to higher interest rates or will there be, a, as you say, like in 2007 and eight, a, a backing off of it um, to increase liquidity because of the, the, the macroeconomic challenges? And if so, is that a you know is that a positive story for commodities or or a, a negative one? Well, you know, our our economics group thinks you know they're going to stick with it, but there is a balancing here that needs to be addressed. And you know, I think this last week the market started to be focused on it. Is if the rate hikes are so aggressive, does it create financial stress in the system that? They don't pause because of economic weakness, but cause because of financial stress. I don't want to get in that debate, but that's, you could argue, 
um, with some of the motivation in in 2007. But here, I'm just going to just really big picture type comment here, is that there is a balance too between the CapEx cycle that's going to solve this in a longer term basis. I don't know if I made this point when we talked back in March, but I like to throw out, you know, the broader question. Was it Arthur Burns who solved inflation or was it Paul Volcker? Everybody says it's Volcker because he raised rates so high, killed off the demand and the inflation went away. But let's not forget that when the economy ran hot in the 70s, you ended up with the biggest cap capex boom the world's ever seen. Obviously, there was a lot of military spending in that, but a good chunk of it was energy. You built the North Sea, the Gulf of Mexico, the Alaska North Slope, um, and the list goes on. Metals production, all of that military expenditures then created the Internet. So we got a lot of stuff out of that 70s CapEx boom. So let me, you know, bad the question, which one solved it? The CapEx boom that ended when Volcker raised rates or was it the high rates? By the way, it had to be the CapEx boom that then, you know, I, you know, we look at here in the UK, you still see the remnants of it with the, with the North Slope production. So for those of you around, you know, listening to this, there was no um, North Sea production pre-1970. It was a function of that huge cap capex boom. So it was meaningful. So the concern you have is going back to our two conditions of inflation, too much money chasing too few goods. You can solve through interest rate hikes the too much money condition. You can't solve through interest rate hikes the too few money condition or too few goods condition. Final question, and this might be a bit facile and so facile that I'd have to cut it. But when you just look purely at the index, how does how do indexes, the commodity indexes in general, stand up in a world of increasing yields as a result of interest rates? Because obviously they, they themselves are just purely capturing a price, the asset price. But they also include the interest rate, the T-bill rate in them, because essentially you they're unlevered. And so that capital gets reinvested in T-bills and then the rest of its margin. So it has it in underlying. Then you have the excess um, return that is the roll yield that's put on top of that T-bill. And then you have the spot return. So there's three components to the return in a commodity indice. T-bill, roll return, which is the, the roll of the shape of the curve, and then the spot return. Now, if we go back over, and I, this may be a week old data, year to date, the index is up something like 26%. Of that 26% return, 16 of it is um, roll yield and T-bill, and 10% of it's spot. And then to answer your question, so if 16% of it is roll yield and T-bill, we know the T-bill is somewhere 4 or 5%, that means the roll yield's around 12 so you get paid in commodity indices for higher rates. And so that's why it is the best hedge against inflation and in the environment we're in. The other point about the roll yield and the spikes in prices that we saw earlier this year is, yes, the spot price of oil spiked from you know, started the year somewhere around 80, went all the way up to 140 or wherever it was, crashed back down to, you know, in the 80s again. And today, I think we're around 92, 93, and you're still, you know, spot is up 10%. But that roll yield was capturing those spikes throughout this year, which is why 
it and the T-bill combined are up 16%, more than the price of oil. Um, and that's why we recommend buying because you're banking those price spikes with these indices. By the way, that said, I can tell you these stories all day long. Are investors interested in these indices? No, but um, I highly suggest people look at them because you know they're the best returning assets out there right now. Well, Jeff, as always, it's been fascinating, really illuminating. I certainly appreciate your time. And, and hopefully, once again, we can have you back on next year and, and, and take the temperature again. Excellent, Paul. Well, thank you so much for having me today. It was a, it was a great opportunity to review the discussion. So uh, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.